Hello, and welcome to Fangraphs Audio, episode 979. We begin today's show with David Lorelo welcoming Red Sox lefty Austin Davis to the program. Davis is in the middle of a career year out of the Boston bullpen, and he shares how buying a TrackMan machine and working on his sweeping slider has changed his game. We also hear about things like playing under Gabe Kapler and with Reese Hoskins, getting advice from Brad Lidge, allowing a big homer to Juan Soto, and famously and egregiously having a scouting note card confiscated on the mound by umpire Joe West. What if I took some of this information instead of trying to, you know, memorize it all day and really lock it on these scouting reports, I just wrote down a few notes on each hitter, put it in my back pocket, so then if they pinch hit or I go in out there and I'm in my fourth, fifth, sixth hitter, I can pull out the scouting report, remember, okay, this is what I want to do against this guy, and then put it in my back pocket. He said he loved the idea, so... I started doing it probably in, man, early July, end of June, like pretty much right when I got up there. And Joe West, I'm pretty sure it was September 1st, it was my first outing back off the injured list. And uh, (laughs) he comes out and he says, hey, you can't have that. And I gave it to him and he just walked away. And I, I don't know, I looked around, I looked at Kapler, I looked back at him and he was just walking away with the card and I did, (laughs) did not see it coming. After that, Dan Zimborski and Ben Clemens are back for another segment of general bantering about baseball. We hear about Ben dipping his toe into the World Series of Poker in Vegas before the pair talk about the red-hot Braves and Yankees, as well as how the Blue Jays could really use another starter. The duo also discuss Miles Miklas's near-no-hitter, the grim catching situation for the Cardinals right now, some questionable base-running blunders, and the phenomena of choosing to believe in a player's performance, despite knowing better, just because they are fun. Like, I am very good at saying Dakota Hudson is just not going to keep this up. And it's ironic because he has for years and years and years. I wrote about him today just in terms of uh, the fact that he alters his pitching repertoire with a runner on first to try to get more double play balls. Just smart. It's a good move. I noticed that Zips projects his ERA like 0.3 below his FIP, which is pretty substantial gap. But anyway, I'm able to look at him and say, nah, like, come on, he's not going to keep doing this. He has a career ERA, like, a point and a half below his FIP. That's not going to keep happening. He doesn't have any special skills. But then if Nestor Cortez does it, I'm like, nope, don't care. He's great. Because <laughs> he's fun. He's got the mustache. He's got, like, just the whole look. He's got just the fact that he doesn't throw hard. Everything about him is very fun. And so I kind of overlook the fact that, like, look at this guy. Look at his measurables. Look at just his swinging strike rates and stuff. Forget FIP. I don't know. That's... That's one Forget thing. Forget FIP. We're going to get in trouble. Yeah, sorry, Why? Appleman. You, you all, this is our war. But before we get to these segments, I must issue my weekly reminder for you to check out the Fangraphs.com shop. Not only is it the best place for you to get your official Fangraphs merch, but you can also pick up an ad-free Fangraphs membership for yourself or as a gift for a friend. It is the best way to both browse the site and to support the site, helping us keep doing everything we do. From the leaderboards, to the projections, to the articles, to the podcast, to the roster resource pages, to everything else. We couldn't do it without you. Thank you. Enjoy the show. Hey, baseball fans. This is David Lorla. My guest this week is Austin Davis, uh, left-handed pitcher for the Boston Red Sox. Austin, thanks for coming on to Fangraphs Audio. Yeah, thanks for having me. Let's uh, start, Austin, with the fact that, you know, A, you are pitching very well this season, and B, after getting off to a slow start, the team is winning at a pretty good clip in recent weeks. 
I assume you're pretty happy with the way life is going right now. Yeah, I think as a team, we're playing really well. It's been fun. When I came over last year from the Pirates, we were winning and uh, rolling into the playoffs and made a fun run. And so coming into this year, we wanted to do that again. And so the slow start uh, wasn't ideal, but then this team just has a way of going out and winning games and not giving up. So that's been fun. And then on a personal side, um, yeah, I think the periphery numbers look good. I think there's still a lot of room for improvement in a lot of areas. I don't know if this is an easy question to answer, but I know it's one that no player minds getting, which is why have you been so good this year? First off, Cora puts me in a really good situation to succeed. Uh, Every time I go out there, it's the most ideal matchup. I'm facing one or two lefties and I'm facing a guy in the middle that I'm confident I can get out. And then if we get into situations where I get need to go multiple innings, I know I can do that also. But I think AC just does a really good job of managing the bullpen, uh, making sure we're rested. And then uh, from the staff side, it's elite here. So they always make sure you're ready to rock and roll. They have no problem doing anything you need to do to get you to be ready on the field, whether that's massage or adjusting workouts or running to make sure you're primed and ready to go to pitch. And that's the most important thing, which is great. And then I think there's a lot of luck involved too. I think you've seen in recent weeks, I've walked a lot of guys, I've gotten behind a lot of guys and I've squeaked out of these situations. But I think overall, if you can get ahead of hitters and put yourself in favorable counts, then you'll have a good chance of being successful. And uh, I'm trying to get back to doing that. And you obviously have a very good slider. We actually had a nerdy conversation about that pitch last September for the Learning and Developing a Pitch series. If I'm remembering correctly, Garrett Cole talking about his curveball was in that same article. We can maybe rehash that conversation a little bit. What is the story behind your slider? Yeah, so different slider than I was throwing last year, actually. So last year, the slider I was throwing was working pretty well for me, but not to the level that I want it to be. Uh, There are a lot of times that I would try and bury it with two strikes and it just wouldn't get down there. And I was trying to find something that could be a little bit more consistent. And I was working out with the... One of my buddies in the offseason, his name is Brooks Krisky, and he learned a slider that has a bunch of different names, but the easiest way to describe it is just a sweeping slider, a lot more horizontal movement than a normal slider, and we spent the whole offseason learning that, and because of the lockout, we couldn't talk to anyone, so we ended up buying our own TrackMan unit and dialed it in to try and learn the slider for both of us, and that's been a huge pitch for me just to keep me on the attack with hitters and keep them off balance and just create a lot more total movement that they got to be able to cover. Well, so you threw me a a little bit of a curveball there uh, because I did not know that you actually have a new slider since last season. I I need to do a better job as a uh, Boston-based reporter. Yeah, I guess so. Um, (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, it's a different slider, similar grip, but the way that this slider works, you just have a better chance of inducing movement based off seam shifted wake or laminar flow or whatever terms guys want to use. I don't know a whole lot about (laughs) the science or physics behind it. All I know is it moves more and I like movement. So I've been throwing one that has, I have to go look at the numbers, but maybe four or five inches more horizontal movement on average than what I was throwing last year. And then the, the top horizontal movement is up into the 19, 20, 21 range in total movement horizontally. So that just makes it a lot more difficult for a hitter to, sit on one pitch or another when one is moving, you know, 18, 20 inches 
one direction and one's moving 18, 20 inches the other direction. And I think that's what I've been trying to do this year is just keep hitters off balance. And this has been a good weapon for that. More horizontal is certainly the way that uh, pitching seems to be going with breaking balls you know, recently. But tell me a little bit, Austin, how you were able to get more horizontal. You know, What were the actual adjustments that you have made? It's really just the grip does the work. So Brooks learned it while he was in the Yankee system last year uh, in AAA. And I don't know where they developed it or they got it from. I know a couple guys with the Astros have been throwing sweeping sliders for a while. The Dodgers, some of these higher performing teams all seem to have figured some way to get a sweeping slider. Ottavino, he throws one, right? Tanner Houck has one that sweeps a lot. Some of it has to do with arm angles. Some has to do with just the grip you use. For me, I took the slider that I was throwing last year and instead of just throwing it in the horseshoe, I split my two fingers over the horseshoe. So my middle fingers now on the other side of the horseshoe and then my pointer finger is in the same section where it was last year if you have the photos we took last year and then the reason that works i'm not exactly sure all i know is you end up getting more drag on one side of the ball than the other and so as the ball goes towards the play it's going to end up taken off because of the seam shifted wake and then it moves Otto obviously has the great slider, as does Hulk. This tall, skinny left-hander who's been injured a lot lately walked into the uh, clubhouse yesterday when I was there. He has a pretty good slider as well. Yes, he does. (laughs) Yeah, that being Chris Sale, of course. Yeah, let's uh, change direction a bit. Back in 2018, uh, your rookie season with the Phillies, Joe West came out to the mound to confiscate an information card that you had in your pocket. That must have been a pretty strange experience. (laughs) It was a strange experience. I did not see that coming. So (laughs) when I first got called up, I was flooded with information, uh, scouting reports, what to do to hitters. And I had never faced any of these hitters before. And so I talked to Kapler and I said, hey, man, what if I took some of this information instead of trying to, you know, memorize it all day and really lock in on these scouting reports? I just wrote down a few notes on each hitter put it in my back pocket. So then if they pinch hit or I go on out there and I'm in my fourth, fifth, sixth hitter, I can pull out the scouting report, remember, okay, this is what I want to do against this guy. And then put it in my back pocket. He said he loved the idea. So I started doing it probably in, man, early July, end of June, like pretty much right when I got up there. And Joe West, I'm pretty sure it was September 1st. It was my first outing back off the injured list and uh he comes out and he said hey you can't have that and i gave it to him and he just walked away and i i don't know i looked around i looked at kapler i looked back at him and he just just walking away with the card and i didn't <laughs> did not see it coming but yeah i don't know that's that's the whole story it wasn't too much to it other than he just came took the card and that was it and very soon afterward, it came out that there was absolutely nothing illegal or improper about you having that card. Joe West was just, oh, I don't know, being Joe West. So Yeah, you know, I, he explained it that it was a foreign substance, like you're not allowed to have anything foreign on you, which he was technically right about. Just no one had taken the step to take it from me because they saw, hey, this is just a note card. But in his defense, you know, as we saw Years later with sticky stuff and everything, guys were hiding sticky stuff all over the place. So who knows if that card was just full of pine tar in the back. So (laughs) (laughs) Probably not, Austin, because that would be cheating and you're an honest man. (laughs) That's right. That's right. 
Yeah, speaking of honest men, actually, I wasn't planning to ask you about uh, Gabe Kapler, but uh, I should. You know, Gabe has actually been a guest on this podcast before. What was it like playing for him? So Gabe was my first big league manager. So the whole experience was new to me. Uh, I had obviously minor league managers coming up, but I thought playing for Gabe was was fun in the sense that he had no reservations on trying whatever we needed to to get guys to be successful. And I think as a rookie coming up, he did a good job with me of giving me time, his time to have conversations. So sometimes, you know, if we're going to go out at 657 for the anthem, we both go out there at 645, 650 and just talk baseball for five, 10 minutes before the game. And that was his way of trying to make me feel comfortable, give me some of his time to digest baseball and just have me feel ready to go before the game. So I appreciated that. Um, and he, he thinks about the game in a lot different way than I think some other managers do. And so I think that opened my eyes to looking for different possibilities to be successful, which obviously throwing a new slider this year kind of builds on that of don't just take for granted what everything, what's going on around you. There's, there's different ways to be successful and there's different ways of doing it. And if what you're doing is not getting the job done, keep searching. And 2018 was, of course, your, your rookie season playing for uh, for Gabe Kapler. So we're coming up on the four-year anniversary of your big league debut, June 20th, I believe it was, versus the Cardinals. What do you remember about that day? Wow. Well, I remember I was. it was the third day I was there, and I hadn't gotten into a game yet, and it was the last game before an off day, so I was really hoping to get in there, but it was three to three in the sixth inning and Arietta was starting and I was thinking, man, this is a close game. I don't know if I'm going to get in there yet. They're not going to trust the rookie with the situation. And then they called down and said, Hey, get Davis ready for the next lefty who was up. I don't remember who it was in that situation and it ended up being bases loaded one out and that guy was on deck. And then, uh, Arietta got into an inning inning double play. And honestly, I was like, Thank God, because <laughs> I I was ready to go, but to come into a bases loaded situation in your big league debut with the game on the line would have been crazy. Uh, and then I got to come in the next inning, face two lefties, give up a hit to one, strike out Colton Long, and then uh, they took me out. I tried to soak it in a little bit, and then I think it was Edubert Ramos came in, cleaned up the inning for me, and then we ended up winning the game, and that was the debut. It was a fun good situation, kind of get him in there, get his feet wet, get him out of there. And uh, no three batter rule at the time. So it's just two batters and I was done. One month later, Austin, one month after your debut, you were credited with your first big league win. When did you actually learn that it was your first big league win? Yeah, I don't remember that. Was that against the Padres? Do you have that up? I am not looking at that. When I looked last night, it looked like you replaced Arietta, who had not gone five. Yeah, I think I think it was the Padres. And if I remember right, I think it was this game. I came in, immediately walked the first guy on four pitches to load the bases and then ended up squeaking out of that situation. And I was pretty fired up about it. And then uh, I still I stole the win from Arietta. Yeah. So I don't I don't remember a ton about that game. but I do remember uh, <laughs> going in and immediately walking the guy and then had to kind of turn it on and get out of that situation. But as a bullpen guy, picking up wins here and there is great. But usually if you're picking up wins, it's because you blew a save and then snuck the win out. So try not to pick up too many wins over the year. 
No, you did not vulture this one. Looking at the box score, I believe it was a game where the official scorer had the discretion to award the win to any one of a, a couple of pitchers. Hence me wondering when you found out because it is quite possible when the game ended, it was the last thing on your mind. You may have had somebody come up to you and say, hey, did you know you got the, the W today? Yeah, yeah. I don't even think we talked about it. I don't I don't know. Wow. All right. Well, let's talk about something that you, you know, maybe don't want to hear about, but I think it's uh, it qualifies as a career notable. The first home run that you gave up in the big leagues, you are from Scottsdale. Yeah, uh, yeah, we're so bringing it, this up, huh? <laughs> yes, I, I, I have to, Austin. Your yeah. first game ever in your home state, you gave up a fourteenth inning yeah. walk off, and I'm sure you had family and friends in the stands. Oh yeah, yeah, fourteenth inning on a, I think it was a Monday night in Chase Field. It was just about my family was the only people left in the stadium. <laughs> oh man, yeah, so. That was uh that was a uh, yeah <laughs> there's a whole lot of emotion there but I come into that game and uh, I ended up striking out Paul Goldschmidt uh, to get the out and growing up in Arizona you know he was the guy we were watching him he was just a stud out of Texas State and he did so much fun stuff while I was a kid I mean not a kid but you know late high school early college guy following the D backs and uh, to strike him out I was kind of not on top of the world, but like, all right, like I'm in the big leagues, I'm doing it. I just struck out Paul Goldschmidt. This is awesome. And then next pitch, walk off homer and then humbled, humbles you real quick. So and I'm pretty sure it hit off the top of the wall in left center and, and skated over. So I just sat there on the mound and watched it kind of unfold. And then I talked to uh, Brad Lidge after the game. He was in town with us, Philly's closer back in their World Series years. And he said, you know, man, the first time I, I went back to Colorado, I gave up a walk-off homer as well. I said, oh, man, that stinks. And he said, yeah, you know what I did the next day? I said, what? He said, I went back out there and I gave up another one. And I said, well, <laughs> thanks, man. And we were only one game into this series. I got two more to go. And uh, fortunately, I did not give up another walk-off in that series. So You did give up a second home run, of course, eventually. Yeah. It was to a 19-year-old kid by the name of Juan Soto. Yeah, that one went far. <laughs> he has a way of doing that. But yeah. no, the reason, uh, Austin, I wanted to bring that up is that assuming good health, there's a pretty good chance that Juan Soto is going to have a plaque in Cooperstown someday. You know, facing guys like that, you know, and a Paul Goldschmidt is the type of thing that you're going to tell your kids and grandkids someday. You know, have you ever stopped back to really think about those matchups? Uh, not in the Not in that sense. I think about those matchups, you know, relative to being ready to go for certain situations or, you know, reliving long homers. I'm pretty sure that Juan Soto homer was third deck, if I remember right. So sometimes, you know, we'll talk about the longest homers we gave up or stuff like that. I think <laughs> those stories are great. You know, tried to beat him with a fastball and he did not miss it. But I don't think about it like that. But I know when baseball career is over and stuff, I'm happy that. We have so much great video and stuff like that where you can go and show your kids all the big homers you gave up and the cool strikeouts you had and stuff. I think that'll be fun. That's actually a good point there with uh, video in modern world. You know, once upon a time, you had to tell your grandkids about what happened. Yeah. And oh, I'll, I'll show you how far it went. Let's go. <laughs> <laughs> no, no. Leah, we don't need to do that. Yeah. Uh, a few more things before I let you go, Austin. 
I want to jump back to your days in the miners, your early days. We're speaking right now on Wednesday, and one of your teammates in A-ball had two home runs last night. So I'm wondering what your memories of uh, Reese Hoskins are. Uh, Reese is a great guy. So Reese and I were drafted the same year, and then we went to low a lakewood our first full season together and you could tell right away that he did not belong there he should have <laughs> been higher up in the system at that point and so i think he stayed for just a few months and then started working his way up and he he flew through the system ahead of me and once i got called up in 18 we uh, got to be teammates again which was fun and then got to live together a couple times throughout the year different spring trainings and stuff and he's a great dude really smart works really hard likes to to be active in the community, which I think is cool. I did not think to look this up, but have you faced uh, Reese Hoskins yet in the big leagues? No, I haven't faced the Phillies at all, actually. The day I got traded to the Red Sox last year, the Phillies were in town to play the Pirates. So I was on the field kind of chatting with all the guys, catching up, and then I got called in to the manager's office and got told I got traded. So that was that would have been the, the first time I would have had a chance to with trades in mind, you have been traded twice now. I know that Cole Irvin was one of your your minor league teammates in the Philly system. He is now with Oakland, who is playing a series in Boston. You know, as we speak, you know, once upon a time, fraternization was you know frowned upon, if not taboo. How does that work in baseball now? Are you pretty free just to walk across the field and just chat with with guys like Cole? Uh, yeah, especially early in the game. I think the way the schedule works now is both sets of pitchers trying to get their throwing done before batting practice starts so that you don't have balls flying at your head while you're trying to play catch, <laughs> which makes for some good time to, to just chat and catch up real quick before batting practice starts. So in, actually in Oakland, when we were there, I went over and we chatted a little bit about, you know, days in the Phillies minor leagues together and then how he's liking it in Oakland, how I'm liking it in Boston, and the, and the different nuances to each organization. And so we had some good time to catch up. No, Cole has actually been a guest on the podcast as well. You mentioned chatting with guys in the outfield. I was at a minor league game about a week ago, and during batting practice, a player took a ball that looked like off the knee on one hop in, in short center. It didn't look serious, but he did walk off with a trainer to have it checked out. And I've often marveled at watching BP of balls just being rifled into the outfield in BP and players just out there playing catch. It's just you guys have uh, eyes in the back of your head most of the time. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Try to avoid being put in the situations, but sometimes that's the way the schedule works out and guys are hitting and hopefully you're facing the field while you're playing catch. And if not, you just got to trust that your instincts are quick enough to get it out of the way if you hear it coming. Yeah. So you haven't been hit in the outfield yet? No, no. Thank goodness. Yeah. One other thing is coming to mind with uh, with teammates. You know, guys get traded a lot. Josh Taylor was one of your teammates back in, in the minors and, and he's in Boston now. Nick Pavetta quite possibly is a former teammate. When guys like that walk into the clubhouse or you, maybe you join a team and walk in, it must be an interesting feeling just seeing these guys and thinking, man, we, we used to be in like a ball together. Yeah, it was really fun for me when I came over to Boston because I played with Nick in 18, 19, and 20. And then I played with Josh Taylor uh, in the GCL, our first half season right after the draft. And he signed free agent out of, I think it was the Northwoods League that year. 
So we got to play together and then we got to play together in low A the next year. And then actually Yaxel Rios, who was with the Red Sox last year, was here as well. So when I came over, I had three guys that I played with for a long, long time, which made it a nice transition in. Especially I got traded and then I, I showed up the next day. I was in a game that day. So just to have the comfortability of those guys on the team so you can talk about, you know, what's the philosophy here? How are things rolling? What's the, the bullpen situation like? Stuff like that where it usually takes you some time to get used to. That made it a lot more comfortable. And then, you know, you go down to eat. It's like, you know, high school days again. You're like, what table do I sit at? But JT's sitting right there. So I'll jump in with him and makes it easier to get to know the other guys on the team. One other uh, trade-related thing before I let you go. You came to Boston in exchange for Michael Chavis, who is having a, a pretty good season w- with the Pirates. Do you or the players in general really pay much attention to who it is that they got traded for? Uh, no, it's funny. People have been asking me a lot about it because he's doing well, uh, which is great for him. But I, yeah, I don't really follow that at all, I think, especially just being position player pitcher that needs you know, doesn't really matter. But I think if he's going to play well for the Pirates and I'm going to play well for the Red Sox, that's awesome. I don't think you you think in terms of like, oh man, I hope we, I hope I outperform him so that it was a good trade or something like that. I'm just trying to help the Red Sox win games and hopefully he can help the Pirates win games. So basically when you face Michael Chavis down the road, all you're going to really care about is striking him out, not to prove who won the trade, but you know, because you helped your team win. Yeah, 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 exactly. Especially because I didn't know him at all prior. So like, you know, if guys talk about Chavis now, it's, hey, Chavis is doing well. It is because he was their teammate, not because he got traded for me or anything. So I think guys are excited that he has got an opportunity to go over there and play every day and get settled in. And obviously it's working out for him. And then I'm excited to be here because I've gotten to throw in some really fun situations and they trust me here and I get to have fun winning games. And obviously looking at the numbers, you are having a great year. You know, you mentioned, you know, not liking the walks, you know, because you want perfection. But I think it's safe to say you are having a very good first couple of months with the Red Sox. And uh, hopefully that is going to continue all season. I appreciate it. I'll uh, see what happens after 162. But yeah, good couple months to start. With any luck, uh, Austin, it will be more than 162 this year. That's right, 162 plus. Yeah, that's the goal. Hey, man, it was great to have you on as a guest, and uh, I will uh, see you at Fenway Park before too long. Yeah, sounds good. Great chat. Okay, and uh, to everybody listening, thanks for uh, tuning into Fangrass Audio. I'm Dan Zimborski, and I'm here with Ben Clemens for the Dan and Ben Untitled Please Someone Think of a Clever Name for Us segment. There's lots of stuff going on right now for us to talk about, like the Braves never losing, the Yankees almost never losing, the bad injury news for Fernando Tatis Jr. and Hyunjin Ryu, the almost no-hitter by Miles Michaelis. And we have Z-stats, we have base running antics, Uh, we probably won't get to all of that, because we're not particularly organized, but we might get to some of it. And now is the part where I say hello to Ben. Hello, Ben. Hey, how's it going? It's it's going fairly well, as, as, as far as I can tell. It's about a million degrees. I guess this is a time that you're glad you're not in St. Louis, but farther away, because the weather there is absolutely nasty. Yeah, I've heard it is terrible there. My uncle lives nearby. It does not sound pleasant. 
Yeah, it was like over 100 degrees. Uh, my thermostat is not maintaining my preferred 71 when it's this hot. Yeah, my thermostat, which is uh, the building, is maintaining its preferred, I don't know, 60-ish, because it's always 60-ish here. Oh, that sounds lovely. For some reason, my house is not the most efficiently laid out, so I don't get that cold. I'd love to just like buy like one of those supermarket air conditioners, because, you know, you go into a supermarket. <laughs> it's freezing. And it's, and it's, yeah, year-round. I was in Las Vegas recently, just for a weekend with some friends to play in the World Series of Poker. It was fun. Oh, and oh, 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 now we have, before we get into baseball, were you were you playing in the main event? Was, what, what, was no, I don't think it started yet. There was like a, a welcome event that was a fairly low buy-in, like four opening days. And I've never played in a, you know, large live poker tournament before. So I thought it'd be fun. Hadn't been to Las Vegas since COVID started and thought that would be nice too. And got to go see two of my friends from college. It was really fun. Uh, none of us, you know, cashed. None of us uh, survived all that long into it, but it was a blast anyway. Did anyone go out in the first hand saying, <gasps> pair of 10s all in? No, I considered that because it would be funny, like just firsthand uh, being out. I think I was very briefly the chip leader because I raised on the first hand and everyone folded, <laughs> like literally the first hand of the day. But no, it was, it was pretty fun. But the point of this was that, man, the AC is there. Yeah. When you're walking outside between casinos and you walk past the front door of one and it's just like the North Pole blew on you. It's so cold. Yeah, they want to keep you alive and active and, and ready to do some gambling and not falling asleep and wanting to go back to your room and not gambling. Exactly. Uh, well, anyway, speaking of going all in, Ooh. the Blue Jays might feel more of a need to after losing Hyun Jin Ryu officially now for the rest of the season. They've won six of nine games. Yet they've lost two games to the Yankees over that period because the Yankees have won eight of nine. And this was I wrote last week was mathematically from a projection standpoint, the biggest opportunity the Blue Jays would have to make up some ground. Instead, they're losing ground. Now they've lost their picture. If you're the Blue Jays now, do you refocus on wild card or do you try to get another picture as quickly as possible just to bolster that rotation? Because Ross Stripling is kind of like the last man, uh, you know, like in the Battle of France and in, in, in 1940 when the French said when uh, was it Wigand that said they have no reinforcements, but Ooh. that's where the, the Blue Jays are. So, My World War II France type stuff ends with. Uh, basically Dunkirk. So I don't actually know. Well, this is pre-Dunkirk. This is when yeah. the, the legend is that uh, Churchill asked the general, uh, where are the reinforcements? And he said it in French that, oh, there aren't any. So allow me to rephrase. My knowledge of France's uh, military engagement in World War II starts and ends with Dunkirk. Um, and I guess okay, they weren't well, even really involved in that. Now, are the Blue Jays in a better tactical position than the British Expeditionary Force? Because yeah. they can they can acquire a division by maybe picking up a picture. If I were the Blue Jays, I think I would try to kind of bolster the back of the rotation. I think it's going to be pretty hard to get a great starter unless the Reds have changed their mind on dealing Maley and Castillo. It feels like the, the A's are going to drag it out and wait close to the deadline and try to extract a haul for Frankie Montes because they did just so poorly, I think, on the rest of their trades. And so that leaves really the, the two Reds guys as the only kind of impact arms you could get now. And I don't know, like they could do that. I think that it might be a little bit chasing something that's not there and that they might be better served to just keep 
the rotation strong, add kind of an okay arm. Because like you said, Ross Stripling is the last man. If he, if another starter gets hurt, they don't have a clear thing that they can do. So adding somebody who would fill in for that can kind of be like a co-number five with Kikuchi and Stripling. Seems worth it. But I don't think they need to, you know, go all in here. They're, they're nine games back at the Yankees, and they're also doing okay for the wild card. They're kind of in a spot where, yeah, like just bolster. It's not like they got much from Ryu this year. True, that is, that 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 is fair. It's just yeah, it does worry because someone goes down all of a sudden because Nate Pearson's still out with with a case of mono that's gone on for months, uh, which doesn't sound good. I had mono in high school and did it last uh, a few months? I I, yeah, I didn't. I didn't get a few months off school. I didn't know that was an option. Yeah, I got like a, I was off for like a week. And like I don't think Kikuchi is awesome or setting the world on fire or anything, but. If you could go acquire Yusei Kikuchi, you'd be like, yeah, okay, I guess. <laughs> and I think there's a lot of people in that vein that they could probably go get. And I think a lot of those would serve them okay. Otherwise, I don't know, like, can Trent Thornton or Trevor Richards start? I mean, Merriweather's on the IL. They have a lot of injury issues. And so I do think they need to get someone. I just don't know who exactly it is. Kikuchi, you mentioned Kikuchi. He's a, he's a picture that... I have a vested interest in pitching well because I kind of put him on my breakout list this year, and that's not really working. I mean, if we could ignore like a few of the starts, it would be working, but it doesn't really work like that, unfortunately. Yeah. He's kind of doing a break sideways. Like, he's all right. He's still all right. Do you think the Jays regret that contract? I don't. I don't. It's not that much money in the big picture, and I think he'll be fine eventually, but we'll see. Yeah, and he's pitched 50 innings for them. You know, he's... If they really just wanted him to fill innings, and I kind of think they did, then he's doing that. Not well, but he's doing that, and kind of what you'd expect when you sign a guy like him. I was certainly sad to see that Kikuchi, uh, because I ran I ran the Z stats numbers for uh, the Fangraphs crowd mm-hmm. last week. All the weeks run together now. It's just that's just what being an adult is like. It seems. Unfortunately, Kikuchi was on the bad place in a couple of these charts. Oof. Zips actually has him right now as a strikeout overachiever. He just missed the home run overachiever list in terms of preventing home runs in a good way. Really? Which is, yeah, he, it actually that's Zips surprising. actually thinks. Yeah, and that's a little worrisome because he has been, you know, hit pretty hard at times. He's been homer prone. And yeah, to say if, the if least. that's lucky. Yeah, that's that like that was my reaction. Great. I will say. It seems like he is easy to lift the ball against. His exit velocity this year, his average is 92.3 miles per hour. And it's it's funny that that's how the number worked out because uh, for a similar thing, what I was doing is making a point about batting average and balls in play. I haven't actually written a piece or anything about it. It was just for Twitter. Uh, I tallied up all the, 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 the non-pitchers who have pitched this year. And their collective batting average on balls in play uh, was 324. And that's generally about where it is historically for hitters being pitchers. Kind of like my usual argument that there's a realistic floor that a competent major league pitcher, how how bad they're going to be preventing hits. Right. Because Kevin Gosman, he's, you know, leading, or at least was at last check, you know, near the top of the league in a lot of good things. But his... Batting average and balls in play was in the 355 range uh, when I made this point. Very high. And there's always someone who will say to me, well, maybe the guy's just pitching really poorly. I'm like, no, there's pitching poorly, and but this is worse than hitters. Yeah. Have you seen the um, the, Sam Mil- the Sam Miller 
take on this where he cut it out between position players pitching when there's nothing on the line and then position players pitching because it's in the 18th inning. Oh, no, I didn't. Yeah, they're they're worse when there's something on the line. Which is which is scary. <laughs> it kind of makes sense that, uh, you know, if the hitters are really locked in and it's a tie game and you get to face Williams Astadio, well, like, probably you're going to hit a lot of line drives because it's almost like batting practice. Well, those pictures, their their combined exit velocity uh, yeah. was 92.0, which is lower Oof. than Kikuchi. The average Kikuchi hit has been hit harder than the average hit off a hitter. I have a question for you here. Sure. Average exit velocity. Do you like that statistic for pitchers or really in general? It's not a great one, but it's a good quick rule of thumb when you're digging into stuff. Yeah. I like to use... This is kind of a pain to do, so I do it a little less, but the average of the top half of batted balls. Uh, yeah, hard hit percentage is actually more useful than yeah, average. It's very similar, hard hit percentage. And I think average the top half of batted balls is kind of a sideways way of getting it, hard hit percentage. Because if it's high, then you have a high hard hit percentage. Because really what it comes down to is a lot of the times you're going to be giving a guy, like, is is hitting... I mean, there's, there's, there's a lot of granularity when you talk about, like, lower miles per hour. Like, is a... Is a 50-mile-per-hour dribbler really that much worse than a 60-mile-per-hour dribbler? Sometimes it is, you know, better to have the slower one because it might die in the grass or something. Right. The way that I think of it is that it's not a linear function. Like, every one-mile-per-hour increase in exit velocity doesn't increase your WOBA by a constant amount. It's, like, very nonlinear, right? Like, it's very flat until you get into the 90s, and then it starts to shoot up and then the difference between 95 and 105 is way bigger than the difference between 85 and 95 in terms of like what you expect to get out of it what did you think of frank schwindel's pitching because he was actually slow for a hitter <laughs> i don't it is kind of funny that he doesn't throw 35 miles an hour right he throws faster than that well this was his pitching this was his repertoire that right. was his changeup. i find his it looping changeup. i thought the home run off of it was re- very cool because i know that Actually, the whole throwing harder provides speed for the batter thing is only kind of true. It's it's mostly just that hitting the ball like with a ton of bat speed is what you want to do, but still really funny. Well, if sweeping sliders couldn't be hot, do you think that the time is now for a pitcher to develop a looping changeup, take Schwindel's changeup and make it a, a weapon? Isn't that kind of what Zach Greinke does? I don't know. That's kind of, it's more curvy. I I think of really going full rainbow. Uh, like, have you ever played Three Flies In with people? Uh, no. Well, that's that? when you have a bunch of friends. You, they go to the outfield, and you throw you throw really high pop-ups. Oh, okay. And they all fight over them. How I hard have, would it be to that. hit if you if someone could throw a pop-up and get it to come down reliably on the plate every time? Oh, impossible. But what if? Are you sure it's impossible? To hit that? No, not to hit that, but for the picture to do that. If the picture oh. could do that, how effective would this picture be? Oh, I think he'd be unhittable. And how does, I'm not even sure how the rule book deals with it. How does it deal with a vertical pitch coming down? Well, if it hits the plate, it's a ball, right? Yeah, but as long as the catcher catches it, does it count that it was like 30 feet above the plate before it landed when it was over the plate? I mean, it shouldn't. But wait, if the catcher's catching it with his glove, like over the plate, isn't he just going to interfere every time? I guess. I. I, mean, I if I, more if a pitcher book. mastered this and I were the batter... I would just swing regularly, right? And if the catcher is far enough forward that he's going to pick it off the ground, essentially, because the ball would hit home plate if he threw a pop-up, then he's going to interfere with me. Dang it. I don't think I can loophole my way through this because that would be fun to see. Now, if you could um, 
throw it to where it lands an inch behind home plate every time and thus probably ticks the back of the black on its path down. I mean, have you been to a batting cage where they drop the ball from the ceiling? I haven't, but I imagine it'd be very hard to hit. I kind of want to see now I want someone to do that just as an experiment to drop balls from ceilings. You couldn't really put much force on it, right? Because the way you put force on the ball is by meeting its plane. Like, you're not going to meet this thing on its plane unless you're going to hit a pop-up. I'm going ha- to have to explore this at some point. I don't know how, but I think that would be fun. But just to go back to Z-Stats for a minute, one picture who did pretty poorly was Nestor Cortez, which, who Zips is not, at least in this indicator, which is a trailing indicator. It's not a sole predictor of the future by any means or stretch of the imagination. Nestor Cortez kind of came out near the top in a lot of places. Do you think that there will be any regression from Cortez mania? I mean, yeah. And it'll be sad, too, because it's funny because he's not a hard thrower. And it's fun to see guys like that kind of be tricksy. I feel like people don't like they don't actually take the lessons they that we've learned from statistics or like from sabermetrics all the time. Like they do unless the story that is anti-sabermetrics is fun. (laughs) Like I am very good at saying Dakota Hudson is just not going to keep this up. And it's ironic because he has for years and years and years. I wrote about him today just in terms of uh, the fact that he alters his pitching repertoire with a runner on first to try to get more double play balls. Just smart. It's a good move. I noticed that Zips projects his ERA like 0.3 below his FIP, which is a pretty substantial gap. But anyway, I'm able to look at him and say, nah, like, come on. He's not going to keep doing this. He has a career ERA like a point and a half below his FIP. That's not going to keep happening. He doesn't have any special skills. But then if Nestor Cortez does it, I'm like, nope, don't care. He's great because he's fun. He's got the mustache. He's got like just the whole look. He's got just the fact that he doesn't throw hard. Everything about him is very fun. And so I kind of overlook the fact that like, look at this guy. Look at his measurables. Look at just his swinging strike rates and stuff. Forget FIP. I don't know. That's that's one Forget thing. Forget but... FIP. We're going to get in trouble. Yeah. Sorry, Why? Appleman. You, you all, this is our war. Like there's just no chance that he's going to keep striking out this many batters. Just not gonna happen, and he's not gonna keep allowing this low BABIP, and he's not gonna keep leaving <laughs> his his left on base rate is almost ninety percent. There's just so many things that are screaming regression, but he's fun, so I ignore it. Now you've given me some key words here: fun, mustache, doesn't throw hard. Ooh, it makes me think going. like we're gonna be talking about Miles Michaelis. Oh. That was a really good transition, Dan, because I had no clue where you were going. I thought you were baiting me to that topic, which we thought we might get into. The almost no-hitter. Uh, for for those who did not watch, Miles Michaelis had a no-hitter into the ninth, one strike away. Cal Mitchell of the Pirates hit in a long one. You know, Harrison Bader was very what well, he could. He, if anyone was going to catch that, it was going to be Bader. He yeah. he did it. It was a ground rule double, and then. Since he lost the no-hitter, he was pulled for Boardwalk Empire's Packy Naughton. Which is reasonable. He'd thrown 129 pitches. Yeah. I don't mind the pull. But I don't know. Do you? I mean, I don't know. I feel like once they lose the no-hitter and they're just one out away, you kind of want to let them try. At least to get a complete game shutout. I think I would have just asked Michaelis what he wanted to do. And I think I would have said, you are not allowed to throw max effort here. Like, you can have another batter if you want it. But, like, you can't throw max effort. I don't want you throwing max effort because a complete game, no hitter. Look, look, you've basically done that. You pitched a mar- marvelous game. And if you want to just chuck one in and see if he hits a grounder, fine. We're up 
eight runs or whatever I think it was. But I don't know. I don't think I need to see him still throw in his hardest once he can't get a no-hitter anymore. That said, here's a, I don't even think, particularly hot take. I think Miles Michaelis is just better than Nestor Cortez. I think he's comfortably better than Nestor Cortez. And if you ask the Yankees who they would rather have for the rest of the year and let them switch them just for the year, I think they'd take Michaelis too. And I'm sure the Cardinals are very happy because they still have him for another season past this. It's it's yeah. turned out to be a, a, a solid contract uh, for the Cardinals. That's been a real roller coaster of a deal. I mean, they gave it to him pretty early, you know, after his return to the majors was awesome. Like his 2018 return was really good. His 2019 was all right. And then they gave him the extension. And yeah, I think it's, it's I think it's, I mean, 2020 was a loss, of course. 2021, it was short, but I mean, he's it's not a lot of money. It's 68 million. It's his four years. It's I, yeah, I, I think it's a good deal. I think he will have provided the requisite return on it. And it is very easy with a pitcher like Michaelis, who doesn't throw that hard and doesn't have any, you know, kind of highlight real breaking balls and really just gets by on, you know, being pretty okay at a lot of things. I think it's easy when they have a bad year to be like, ah, this is over. But yeah, I don't know. He's he's good. He's above average. If you thought he wasn't above average, you probably haven't watched him since he's returned to the Cardinals because that's kind of always what he does. He doesn't walk that many guys. He strikes out enough guys and just works. Now, as the esteemed local Cardinals fan on our site, you have it. There's it all comes down to one game, and so obviously it's not going to be a game one sixty three because baseball thought that you know tie games. I mean, you know, breaking ties with statistics is more fun than having an actual baseball game, but that's where we are. It's, it's, a, it's an elimination game. Michaelis, Wainwright, and Hudson are all healthy and rested. Who do you want to go with? Well, I will first rule out Hudson, because, no, not really my thing. Here's um a perhaps uncharitable thing to say. Am I allowed to have Andrew Kisner catch either of them? Well, yeah, you have, you have authority over your catchers. But, you know, like, I don't know if Kisner has ever caught Wainwright. I think in this situation where someone has a gun to your head, they're making you make a horrible, a very strange, you know, decision for your life. I think in that case, it's it's like you get to yeah. pick the lineup. You get you to know, pick the lineup. You can put everyone in the lineup who you want, but they have to be in the Cardinals. You can't put Trout in. I think I would still just start Michaelis. Man, Kisner has not been good this year either. Ugh. Cardinals catching situation is, I mean, that's what Jay should write about for replacement level killers. This is... This is just grim stuff. Molina. Molina at the plate. I don't want to be rude, but he's kind of looked like a guy who's clearly like on a farewell tour. Oh, no. He's um, I, I think he's still defensively quite capable. He's just done at the plate. It's just done. Yeah. He, I mean, he is. I don't think it's it's really on a skill, but I mean, he is he, he's swinging at everything. He's just like, whatever. He's kind of like when dad's been playing a game with the kids. He's, he's with the part like where he almost doesn't care at this point. Like, I'm just whatever. I'm just going to swing it. I don't care. You do Z-Babip, right? I do Z-Babip. Does it take into account speed? It does take into account speed. What's Molina's Z-Babip this year? Oh, uh, let me open that. Very, very it's, like he's he's batting two twenty, and I feel like he should be batting one fifty. Yeah, now on 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 Z-Bab Bip, poor Mike Mustakas, Zips thought he's actually deserved like a one sixty Babip. Oh, he's I mean, Mustakas has been awful. I'm I'm also kind of filibustering while I open this file up. And I opened up the wrong file. I opened up the pictures, damn it. Excel is yelling at me. Hopefully Dylan will edit me out screaming at Excel. Don't leave it in, in my opinion. <laughs> or you or you can leave it in. Yeah, this just can't be high. 
Well, in the meantime, while I look this up, do you think what 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 should the Cardinals do? Do you think they need another picture right now, a starting picture? I want to see what Flaherty has. Basically, he's starting today, which is cool, and I wouldn't mind getting another pitcher. You know, like everyone can always use more pitching depth, but between like lots of these swing manish guys that they currently have in the bullpen, Andre Pallante, Zach Thompson, Packy Naughton, Johan Oviedo, I guess Verhagen kind of fits in that. Like a lot of those guys are kind of five and dive types if you need them to be. Mats is probably coming back before too long. I don't think they need another starter. They need a catcher. Like <laughs> they badly need a catcher. The catching situation is just awful. And I mean, they kind of need a, well, I guess they have Juan Yepes as a right-handed hitting DH, <laughs> but they kind of need an Albert Pujols replacement at this point. I think he's really, uh, he's really tailed off kind of badly. And a Corey Dickerson replacement. He's just never, he didn't tail. He just never started. I think their, their hitting depth is kind of shockingly bad for the fact that that's who they were spending on. I don't think they necessarily need more pitching. Maybe another reliever because like I said, they just have a bunch of these swingmen who are kind of starters. But yeah, I if I were the Cardinals, I would really be focused on catching. Wilson Contreras on the Cardinals would be great. I think that would be <laughs> quite enjoyable to me. I, I I did finally get it open, and Zibs actually thinks that he should have a batting bat bip around two fifty. Yeah. Uh, I mean, he's still hitting it hard. He's just not a little less disciplined than usual, which is something because he's one of the least disciplined hitters in baseball. That's that's kind of been his thing is that he swings at everything because he's a good contact guy. His out-of-zone swing rate per our Fangraph statistics, you know, just O's swing percentage, is higher than a lot of people's actual swing rate. Let me uh, let me give you some good hitters who swing at overall pitches less than he swings at pitches. Uh, Juan Soto, Alex Bregman, Kyle Schwarber, Miles Straw, Jake Cronenworth, we can keep going, Mookie Betts, Yandy Diaz, J.P. Crawford, Mike Yastrzemski, Will Smith, Mike Trout, Tommy Fan. Cabrian Hayes, Christian Yelich, Matt Matt Chapman. Wow, that, that's kind of surprising. Luis Arias, who you think of as a free swinger. Jordan Alvarez. He, he does swing at Jock Peterson less than Tommy Pham does, though. <laughs> I don't know. Maybe he just hasn't had a chance yet. He's not the least prone to fisticuffs and general brawling and yapping. But yeah, it's it's truly surprising to me how much he swings. I almost wrote an article about this at the beginning of the year called If You Throw a breaking ball to Yadier Molina, he will swing. Because <laughs> if something started over the plate and broke down, he was just he was just cutting. And it's improved a little bit, but it's kind of wild. Well, anyway, I, I, I mentioned Mike Moustakas and his 166 Z-Bubbit. Yeah. But there's actually one hitter who Zips thinks should have earned an even worse Babip, and it's a member of the Cardinals. This member oh. of the Cardinals had a 159 Zababip. Uh, it is actually overperforming, obviously, because... Yeah. And I'm asking you to name that Cardinal. Okay. Um, can you tell me if they're, like, if they've played more than, say, I don't know, 25 plate appearances? They're under 100. Okay. Under 100, but not not tiny. Uh, Dickerson. It has not been Dickerson. Hmm. Well, I'm trying to do this without looking at <laughs> any Cardinals. Kisner? It's not Kisner. I guess he's probably played 100. Yeah, he has gone over 100. Paul DeYoung. Ah, yeah. He, he had a Poor rough guy. start to the year. He has a 417 OPS. And not knowing any of his actual results, just from his hit data, Zips actually thinks 
he should be he should have been worse than that in 86 plate appearances he's really started to pick it up in the minors and i, I think they're actually going to call him back up soon yeah I'm, I'm still i'm still optimistic about him relatively speaking i don't think he's going to return to his rookie season at any point but you know if he's an 85 to 90 wrc plus guy his defense is good enough that he is a contributor uh, yeah. but he's not a contributor when it's 20 yeah now i think basically in june in the minors he has like a 750 slug he's starting to just you know essentially do paul de young things which is just mash home runs when people throw in bad pitches and he gets a lot more of those in the minors so i think there's hope for him and i think they'll bring him back up because look nolan gorman is like a nice thing to have and to do and he should be in the majors but i think he's gonna end up being kind of a dh for now that's great like let edmund play second edmund's good let a shortstop play short and let gorman kind of spell second and spell third and dh i think that's the end goal of the cardinals and that the reason they demoted de young was that he was running out of time before he couldn't be optioned to the minors and they just wanted to like clear his head that's my guess now, now, before we finish, I did want to touch on the other bad injury news, Fernando Tatis Jr. Oh, uh, obviously, it's it's not the worst news in the world. It's just a delay. Uh, for those who are not up to date, in his recovery from his, the broken bone in his wrist, he had a, a CAT scan, and it revealed he was not healing as well as the team had hoped, and that he could not start swinging the bat. The original... The forecast for the injury was three months. It's clearly not going to be now because he'd have to start swinging now to have any chance of coming back. Uh, so the Padres look like they're going to be without Tatis longer. And I think from a general standpoint, it means baseball is going to be without Tatis longer. If he's healthy enough to play in the All-Star game, do you think that he should just be added to the roster? Do you think that's, that a manager should do that? Because I kind of think that he's, you know, he's a, young superstar someone who baseball builds around whether it's the home run derby or something you have to get him in there if he's healthy uh i'm gonna say no because i wouldn't want him to play now if he's back like let's say that he returns on june 29th which seems kind of tight at this point and is back and he looks good and everything's going well then yeah then i'm okay with it but i kind of don't think he'll be back and ready and in the majors at that point and so, no, I, I would say don't do it. But I would love to have Tatis back in general. He's awesome. He's really fun. And we're clearly worse off for not having him. I'm impressed the Padres have been so good without him. Yeah, uh, one of the things about the Padres, they're in the middle of the pack in, in runs scored, kind of around, it was 21st as of this morning in WRC Plus for a team. It's not a team that has hit very well at all. Uh, Eric Hosmer had a big April, but he hasn't hit at all since. But they have been fortunate. Jake Cronenworth has been coming along. Uh, Trent Grisham is slowly getting back to where he should be. He's still pretty far away. Yeah. Kim has been totally reasonable. It. I mean, the team has not been a run-scoring machine. Uh, it. It's the pitching that's, that's done the work. Now, uh, my question on Tatis is, at what point should the Padres be considering uh, moving him to a less impactful defensive position? What what point do we see Fernando Tatis left fielder? Uh, I don't know. I would keep him in the infield a decent amount longer. I'd maybe not let him ride a motorcycle, you know. Or do anything. <laughs> you know, just put him in. I mean, you can't put him in bubble wrap in the offseason. But I think I might say, buddy, like, give $300 million. Let's hire a chauffeur. Generally speaking, though, I don't see 
Tatis's effort level as being like a natural fit for playing the outfield, he's going to dive all over the place. And his wrists don't seem like the strongest wrists in the world. I feel like he has kind of arm injuries a lot. I would be kind of hesitant to put him in a place where you know he's going to dive. He's the kind of guy who gives that kind of effort. And I don't think that's easy to kind of untrain on instinct. And so, yeah, I, I would keep trying him at shortstop. But if he suffers, I don't know, another serious injury as a result of playing shortstop, then I would move him. Now, before we finish, I did want to touch on uh, some base running adventures that we had with Charlie Blackman in the Gar- Guardians-Rockies game. Uh, I still sometimes forget who the Guardians are. I, I'm still getting acclimated to that. But Blackman, you know, didn't make the best decision, and he, but he, he kind of won in the end. Uh, he had an so, article written about him, and I don't think that was going to happen for Charlie Blackman otherwise this year. So got that going for him. Well, I mean, there could have been a bad article because it is the Rockies involved, and and I am still I am still employed here, so there's always a chance for a, a negative Rockies space. Uh, it was funny. Uh, were you were you a baseball stars player on the NES? No. You could actually uh, trick the computer that if your player was caught in a rundown, if you ran up and down enough, sometimes two of the fielders would get close enough that they would overthrow each other and throw it like into center field. And you could kind of manipulate that and score run. I tried not to do that because it felt like cheating, but that's kind of like what it felt. It, people were throwing the ball until Austin Hedges kind of bumbled it. and <laughs> Austin Hedges literally dropped the ball from in his glove, like. He didn't drop it on a catch. Yeah. He didn't, like, not secure a catch. He had it, and then he just dropped it. Like, if yeah. Blackman had just retreated to third base in the middle of this rundown, and if you haven't seen it, I, I highly suggest you watch it. There's an article on Fangraphs called Base Running is Hard. And there's a gif. Like, that would have been the biggest gaffe of the night. There was a chance to make this huge game-swinging play, and Austin Hedges dropped the ball out of his glove from a secured position and, like, lost a rundown. And Charlie Blackman inexplicably just charged directly at him. I don't, if you watch the gif, when Hedges retrieves the ball from, you know, at his feet, I think it maybe bounced a foot away from him when he dropped it out of his glove, Blackman starts charging for him. And when he picks the ball up, Blackman is three feet from him. And he's like, oh, what? Like, great. I guess, I guess I got this free out. <laughs> I, I think Blackman just had a, a mental lapse. And, you know, it happens to me all the time. And I write the same sentence three times in a row. And, look at it and say, oh, this is bad. Thank God I, no one's watching me while I work. But Blackman's just happened to happen at a, at a time where a mental lapse is going to cost you. It basically cost them a win, right? Yeah, I mean, I don't know if you would call it like a win in war or any kind of win probability thing, but it was a it was a pretty big deal when it happened. Yeah, bases loaded. I mean, 10th inning. Yeah. in a run with no one out, you win that game fairly often. And first and second, one out down a run. You know what? I'm going to do it. I've got the uh, the WPA Inquirer here. I'm going to give some general talk in the background to distract you while uh, I do it. Okay, so if you have the bases loaded, no outs, down a run in the bottom of the ninth or later, that's the situation that they would have been in if Blackman just retreated to third, then you win 74% of the time, according to our WPA Inquirer, which is not quite right, but does the thing that you're looking to do roughly. If you now have first and second with one out, you only win a third of the time. So half a win, Blackman, like, kind of donked away, and half a win is what Hedges... <laughs> Hedges attempted to give the Rockies half a win, and Charlie Blackman said, "Ah, oh, you know what? I was caught dead to rights. You can have me. And 
it was strange because Charlie Blackman is a good base runner. And for his career, he's a very good base runner, despite middling speed at this point. And Austin Hedges is, I mean, the very best defensive catcher in baseball, maybe? I think so. If not, then he's quite close. Yeah, and the, posi- and the position's also, one of the main jobs of a catcher is holding onto a ball in your glove. It's specifically the only thing he does, and he does it well enough that despite having a career batting line of 192, 247, 342, he's a starter for a team that is above 500, or at very least, bouncing around above 500. They are right now. And he just dropped the ball. <laughs> it was great. What would be the comparable uh, abuse of a skill set? Would it be Yadi Molina on the mound if he had struck out Juan Soto? <laughs> yeah. Swinging. I think it would be, um, I don't know if you saw the Ty France swing, the fake swing, <laughs> where uh, the, the ball went to the backstop. And after the ball went to the backstop, after he'd taken it, he just kind of swung. The umpire wasn't looking and didn't call it a swing. But it would be like if Soto did that, except after the catcher caught the ball. You know, the, <laughs> Soto takes a pitch for a ball, and then before the umpire can call ball, he just swings and gets himself out. And on that note, I think we are about out of time. I want to thank you for joining us. Thank you in, uh, for my colleague, Ben Clemens. Uh, and also remind you that we do have memberships at Fangraphs. So if you enjoy our content, consider becoming a member and remove some of those pesky ads. And you get some benefits, like you get to download roster resource pages into an Excel file with a easy button and more stuff is in the future. Uh, so for, for all of us at Fangraphs, thank you for joining us. I'm Dan Zaborski. This has been Fangraphs Audio. Thank you to Austin Davis for joining us, and thank you for listening. If you enjoyed the program, consider telling a friend or two about it. It helps us out. After you've checked out the official Fangraph shop and scoped a membership, check out our new merch with our pals over at Breaking Tea, and don't forget to sign up for the Fangraphs newsletter. It is the best way to keep up with everything we have going on, free to your inbox every weekday. That'll do it for us this week. Be excellent to each other, and we'll talk to you next time.